I believe. Do you believe? Can I hear an I believe? I'm going to come back to that at the end. And today, I'm really going to talk to you about why I believe, some things that have really impacted me. Um, so we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, if you want to turn there. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. Um, also, one other thing. I've got a handout thing, because today I've got some really important information. I've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their account of the story. I had to run into another thing between and wasn't able to replenish those. So if my guys who've been doing, who helped with uh, ushering, can I have you guys help me with one more thing really quick? If you are sitting and you can't see one of these sheets somewhere and you want one um, for notes and to see what I'm doing with the other Gospels, would you raise your hand so they can get you one? Because I forgot there's a bunch up here or look at a row around you. But if you need one, be brave, raise your hand, and those guys can, can grab one for you. Thank you. These guys, it's their first day in the job, by the way. Here, I'm doing this to them. So thank you, guys. So if you want one of those sheets, raise your hand because we are... We're going to be in Mark, but I also want you to see what's happening in some of the other Gospels related to this story. But we're going to focus not on the sheet right now. We'll come to that in a minute. I really want to look at Mark chapter 10. And if you're online, by the way, we emailed this out, so you, you have a minute while I talk about something else to print that off. But something really cool happened here this week. We had the opportunity to bring in a truckload of food. We had 960 boxes of food. 960 gallons of milk on Tuesday. We had a good number of volunteers from this body that came out, and we were able to get all of those to people um, who were in need, especially we, we were doing that when Tyson was letting out, and a lot of their employees who could use the extra help came by. And I mean, you, I don't know if you can tell, that they may be a little blurry, but the cars were backed up um, clear to the, to the road many times. Um, Bob Moore, I don't know if Bob was on first service or Bob's on second service. Bob and Sherry helped out. They were great. They passed out so many boxes, and I was talking to him about he deserved overtime pay. And he said, you know, all I want is a gold star. And so on this photo, that's Bob right there. Bob, I put a gold star on there for you. So I appreciate it all you did. Um, and not only that, two weeks ago, we had the baptism in here. Wasn't that cool? like to, to see people would come to Jesus. So Jonathan, Diane, Ashley, Faith were in first service. So if you weren't here in first service, those are the ones that were baptized in first service. And then second service, we had Kelsey, Jack, and Brother Samuel. And if you know Samuel, you know why I've got to put Brother Samuel on there. So Brother Samuel, it was good. So that was very exciting. Um, that was really cool. So we're continuing through the New Testament. Again, we're in Mark chapter 10. Um, and before I jump into Mark 10, I've had some people ask if I want a resource to help me answering questions, but I don't want a whole library. What do you recommend? I want to recommend two things. I think everybody should have a good study Bible. Andy's got a big one right there. In my opinion, the best one is the NIV study Bible. Um, so if you, that has a lot of good stuff, can explain things. So I recommend the study Bible. If you're wanting a commentary in the whole Bible, the new Bible commentary is what I would recommend about that thick. But if you're just wanting some resources, like one book or two that you can go to, that's what I recommend. They, they can't go into super detail, being one book, but uh, that's what I recommend. So I want to read in, math, in Mark 10. I'm just going to read the text today like I did two weeks ago with the demoniac and comment on it as I read, and we'll just follow along. But this is the word of the Lord, and that's really my topic today is I want to demonstrate to you that this is the word of the Lord. Um, so Father, we come to you with open hearts. 
we want to hear, we want to be changed. I pray that, that, Lord, there are people here who need to hear not just this story, but need to hear the stuff we're going to talk about. So we're trusting you to be at work, Jesus, and I pray in your name. Amen. So in Mark 10, Jesus, come to verse 46, it says, they, then they came to Jericho. Earlier in the chapter, a few verses back in verse 32, it says, they were on their way to Jerusalem. So Jesus is heading to Jerusalem for the final week of his life. He will be, he will be dead in a week, okay? So heading up to Jerusalem. They came to Jericho. Um, here's Jericho. It's about 15 miles from Jerusalem. It's down by close to the Dead Sea. It's the lowest city on the earth. It's actually under, um, it's below sea level, five miles from the Jordan River, and again, 15 miles up to Jerusalem. It is a big elevation gain. If you, if you were to do that, it's 15 miles. If you were to do that one day, you'd have about a 3,100-foot elevation gain. That's a lot. Like if I do a 14er, I'm usually starting at around 9,000. Uh, that doesn't add up. Maybe 10. Anyways, it's, it's equivalent you're not up in the air the same, but it's, that's, a, that's a lot of elevation gain. As you can see, it's, the city sits right next to the Judean desert, and Jerusalem is back that way. You actually head up through those hills um, on the journey to Jerusalem. So this story takes place in Jericho, and we're told in verse 46 that as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, and that large crowd's significant because, again, they're heading to Passover, and there would have been hundreds of thousands of people who would have been on that road, on that journey, like if you're from Galilee, you would have taken the road down following the river to Jericho and then from Jericho up to Jerusalem. There would have been hundreds of thousands of people that would have been coming through as pilgrims. And not only that, but this guy who you've heard about for three years, this Jesus, this miracle worker who does all of this, he's in that group. So there would have been a huge crowd. It probably would have been like the the rat and the boa kind of thing, like that. There would have been a huge group around him just because of who he was. So here's a large crowd, and they were leaving the city, Mark says, and a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, he was sitting by the roadside begging. And I want you to know that, the, that a beggar, period, just a beggar is an outcast in pretty much any culture, right? They're looked down upon. Um, a blind beggar, in a minute I'm going to tell you why, was particularly like at the bottom of the barrel, the lowest of the low, very marginalized, people that nobody really cared about. So he encounters this blind Um, beggar who's sitting alongside the road who's begging. And we know from that culture um, the beggars where they would would sit is not in the city, but they would be at the gate outside of the city. So at the entrance, they would sit on the road right outside of the gate. So he would have been outside of the gate begging. When he heard that it was Jesus, and I do need to say if we were looking at Luke's gospel, he says when he heard the crowd going by, he asked what's happening. So he hears this huge crowd coming, what's happening? And in Mark, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have we heard that anywhere recently? Have you read or encountered this anywhere recently? That's what the Canaanite woman was crying out to him, right? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And remember, the son of David is significant. That is a claim. That's a messianic title. That is a claim of her belief that Jesus is the Messiah. In Mark, only two people called Jesus the Messiah in Mark. Peter, in chapter 8, when he, Jesus says, who do you say I am? He says, you are the Messiah. And this is the only other person that says this in Mark's accounting, which is, if you remember, it's Peter's, he, Mark's recorded Peter's eyewitness testimony, which we'll get to in a minute. But only the second person. And it's, so it's interesting that all through Mark, because that, if you remember, that's what the book of Mark is about. The first half is who is he? 
The answer is in the middle. He is the Messiah. And then the, the last half of Mark is what kind of Messiah is he? Is he that triumphant king people expect? Or was he the suffering servant, which is what we find out he was? So the, the whole book of Mark is about who is he. And as you've read Mark, people are clueless, right? Even his followers half the time don't really understand who he is. Even after Peter says that, he still doesn't totally get the implications of it. So it's really interesting that the only other person in Mark who sees who Jesus is clearly, other than the demons, who very clearly every time know who he is, is a man who is physically blind. So the man who can't see physically is like almost the only person in Mark who can see spiritually, and all the people who can see physically have no clue who he is. So it's really significant that he calls out son of David. It says, many rebuked him because, you know, again, he's a social outcast, and he's shouting, they rebuked him, they told him to be quiet. Um, he's just a nuisance. He's annoying them with his loud shouting. Um, he's an intrusion. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. In their mind, he's going to become king up there, right? And like, you're delaying something that's really significant, so just sit down and be quiet. You an important person. Um, it's also interesting because this is many rebuked him. In, earlier in this chapter, a few verses back in verse 13, when people brought children to Jesus, it says the disciples rebuked them and told them to get away, but Jesus said, bring them to me. We frequently find that the people who, who come to Jesus who are outcasts or whatever, others rebuke them and Jesus always accepts them. I love that. But they told him to be quiet, but it says he just shouted all the more, all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Matthew, in his accounting of this story, says he shouted all the louder, all the louder. So, we're told in verse 49, Jesus stopped and he said, call him. And Luke, Luke's accounting, his eyewitness testimony says, he ordered the man to be brought to him. So bring him to me. He calls him, bring him to me. So they called to the blind man. This is just so funny to me. Cheer up. Uh, take heart. It could mean have courage, but hey, cheer up. Suddenly they change their tune, right? They're telling him to shut up for one minute, and then Jesus is like, hey, call him. Oh, hey, you know, good day for you, right? Uh, people are so funny in the Gospels. It'd be funny, except that's me half the time, right? But it's just funny to me. They, they change their tune. So cheer up. On your feet. He's calling you. So he's throwing his cloak aside, and this is significant. He would have been sitting on the ground like most beggars did, um, probably legs crossed, he would have had his cloak over his legs. In Jericho, it's a warm climate, temperate all year round, so he didn't need it for warmth. But they would lay it over their legs, and then people would toss their money onto that outer cloak. That's, what, that's where they collected the money. So he took that thing, threw that, coins and all to, the, all to the side, jumped to his feet. I love his reckless abandon. And he came to Jesus. We don't know if he got brought to Jesus. He had heard his voice, so he knew kind of where to go, so he walked over there. Verse 51, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabboni. Um, in the NIV right now, it says Rabbi. I'm saying Rabboni because it's actually Rabboni, and that's significant. I'll tell you in a second. Rabboni, I want to see. That's his answer. Um, a couple things I notice in this. Earlier in the chapter, this, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus said these exact same words to two other people. James and John came to Jesus, and they said, hey, we have a favor to ask. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? Exact same words. And they said, we want to be number one and number two in your kingdom. When you come, we want the, the chief seats. We want to be the top guys, the big guns in your kingdom. And Jesus is like, you cannot drink the cup I'm going to drink. And 
They ask a legitimate request, and he doesn't give it. This guy comes, and he asks the exact same question, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, Rabbi, and I want to see. Um, in their culture, you frequently see in the Gospels the word most used of Jesus is teacher. That's kind of a low level. I mean, it's important. It's somebody who is seen as a religious authority, so teacher. Higher above that would be a person who is officially a rabbi, officially seen by the religious leaders as a teacher. The very highest level would be a rabboni. It means actually my teacher, my lord, my, messiah, my master. It's a very strong word. It was only used of like the high priest would be the only person called that. That he calls Jesus this is really, really significant that he calls him rabboni. I want to see. Matthew says that Jesus had compassion on him. And then in verse 52, Jesus says, go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Um, the word heal, sozo in Greek, can be, it's used for both physical healing and it's the word translated save. Anytime you see the word saved in the New Testament, it's that same Greek word. It has both ideas to it. It can be used one or the other. Most people think when he says you have been sozoed, that what he's saying is you've been physically healed, but you have also demonstrated your faith in me as the Messiah. You have called me this high rabboni. Matthew says that when he came to him, he said, Lord, you called me Lord, that this is also a turning point of your life. It's not just physical healing, but you have been converted to me. You have been saved this day by your confession. And immediately he received his sight, Mark says, and he followed Jesus along the road, followed him along the road. That language following is very strong language used in the Gospels of discipleship. Um, so it's that he is committing his life to Jesus. The verb in the Greek stresses it's the beginning of an action with long, ongoing, continuous action. So he has begun to follow Jesus with his whole life. Um, Luke 18 says that he followed Jesus praising God and all the people who saw it, they also praised God. So pretty cool story, huh? I love that story. I love it for two reasons. At the end, I'm going to come to one of the reasons I love it. The other reason I love it is because this story, to me, is, um, is significant. I think in me having this firmness that the Gospels are trustworthy, that I can believe what they say. And that's what I want to spend most of my time on is that second one. We'll come back to the first. I chose this passage. I've been waiting since January to get to this because it's really significant for me. I picked it because this story, if you read it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, has two major contradictions in it, two big contradictions. And if somebody were to come to you who's knowledgeable of the New Testament, who wants to say, the Bible contradicts itself, the Gospels contradict themselves, therefore they're not reliable, this is maybe the main story that people pull out because it's got two. And so this is something people will pull out um, and show to you. And the two are this. Was there one blind man or were there two? Because they disagree. And was he leaving Jericho or was he approaching Jericho? Because they don't agree on that. We'll get to the disagreements in a minute. But here's what I want to tell you is the prevailing view in our culture. And this is getting stronger and stronger. And this is really why I wanted to talk to this. Um, if you were to pull this sheet out now, because I want to get to this. If you were to look at the part with the three gospels side by side, we're going to look a little bit at that. But underneath it, I have a paragraph I wrote. And I don't want to read the whole thing. Because I learned first service that uh, I'm very excited about this topic and went a little long, so I'm trying to abbreviate it. But if I were to tell you the content of this thing that I wrote, here's what's the prevailing view being told these days in our culture, that the Gospels are purely legends and myths, books that were written several generations after Jesus lived, 
enough time that things could get changed, legends could build, get, get built up, embellish, throw in miracle stories, that the four Gospels we have are really not what Jesus was. He was just this simple teacher guy, and that over generations they added things to the Gospels. Not only that, here's the thing we're hearing a lot these days in our culture. They've been finding other Gospels. I don't know if you know that. In Egypt, primarily in Egypt. And, and here's what they're saying is there's dozens of Gospels out there and that the four we have are just the four that won out because they ended up being the people who were, who were in power in Christianity. The majority said, no, these four Gospels are our view of Jesus and these other Gospels that had totally different views of Jesus were thrown out because they weren't the majority view. So really all we have are four stories of Jesus that are full of myths and legends that are four of many and it could have been other ones that would have told a totally different story. And trust me, this is, I don't know how, if you know how prevalent this is, it's very prevalent. Um, it's so prevalent that if you were to watch anything about Jesus on the Discovery Channel, on the National Geographic Network, on PBS, they're going to have scholars on who present this view and talk about this. Um, not only that, at Emporia State University, there is a particular gen ed class that everybody has to take. And the, main, the teacher who teaches two-thirds of that, of those, actually talks about this. All three of my kids had this teacher, and they spent a week on this. And he assigned to them the book by Elaine Pagels, which talks about all these Gospels and that whole thing that just these won out, but none of them are really true. Um, so this is something that a lot of Emporia State University students have heard this story. It's something my dad used to tell me before I was a believer. When he, he didn't do this a lot, but when he would talk about the Bible not being true, he would just always say, Garen, there's, there's just these contradictions in it. You just need to know that. He was trying to keep me so I wouldn't ever become that kind of person who believed this and would point out a few things, like perhaps the Bartimaeus story. And so here's the question. The Gospels that we have, are they reliable and are they historically accurate? That is the question. To me, that's the most important, and that's the question I want to answer this morning. And what I want to do this morning is I want to demonstrate that this prevailing view that's out there, that these are legends, that that is not true at all. It's not at all accurate. It's very popular right now, but there's hardly any evidence to it, and I want to today show you why that's true. And here's my intention when I do this. I've got several people in my mind. I have some people in my mind who have been in that class at ESU, or they've seen a special on the National Geographic. They've heard this and has planted a seed of doubt in their mind. Are these really accurate and reliable? And if you're that person, I'm hoping today that you leave strengthened in your faith, and as you walk out, you'll say, I believe. There are probably some people in here, you've seen a special, you've been in the class at ESU, and you've actually bought into the prevailing view, and you think that there's probably some legends and myths that are slipped in there, and they're really not trustworthy. And if you're here today like that, I want to convince you that this is actually, that notion is not true, with kindness, hopefully. And then third, I just think everybody needs to know this, to be honest, because this is what's in the air today. And do you guys remember when The Passion of the Christ came out? That was quite a long time ago, but Scott Waters and I went and watched it together. We took a bunch of internationals to it, but we wanted to see it first. We came out of the theater, and the Emporia Gazette had a reporter there, and he wanted to know what we thought. And so Scott, being... Um, a Christian who sees himself as living on mission. He said it was really awesome. It was great. He said, I'm leaving now more than ever. And he used the old C.S. Lewis thing, convinced that Jesus is Lord because he's either, liar, a, he's either li a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. And he's obviously not the first two, so he's the Lord. And I was like, you know, I didn't say it, but Scott, good job. And then the guy said this. 
since C.S. Lewis wrote that, that is the prevailing view. He says, yeah, but you left out the view that's actually true, which is legend. This is all a legend. It's not true. And I got to briefly share with him one thing related to that. But there are people who believe this. And just because maybe you've never even heard it, you may encounter it. And I want you to know how to address it. Or at least to be like, hold on, i got to run home. Let me grab a sheet or something, okay? So that's my intent. But in all this, to me, the key are these two questions. Here are the two most important things. Is Number one, when we're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are they eyewitness documents? That's the key. Are they eyewitness accounts of Jesus? People independently who saw these events happen? That's the first question. And secondly, when the Gospels were written and distributed, were they distributed, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were they distributed in the generation of people who saw Jesus while they were still alive, and they would know if this stuff is true? So those are the two things. Are they really eyewitness documents? Were they distributed in the time when those people who saw those events were living? I want to briefly just say something about this one, because I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But pretty much now, this is why it kind of, it, it's a little bit infuriating to me when I see stuff on Discovery or whatever. Even the most liberal scholars, almost everybody now agrees, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written and distributed widely during the time when the people who had seen Jesus were still living. That, that is not even questioned anymore. So they were written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and distributed during the period when people were still alive who had seen him. In fact, we have good evidence. I could argue that Mark was written 20 years after Jesus had lived. 20 years. Now, let me put that in context on how important it is that the generation who saw these things gets to read these documents. How many of you were alive? Well, probably everybody was alive. How many of you remember 9-11, the, the attack on 9-11? How many of you remember it vividly? You remember where you were when you saw it or when you heard it. You remembered pictures. You remembered images of, of that thing because that's how eyewitness testimony works. When you see something very significant, unusual happens, big things stick in your mind. You can ask me what I was doing tomorrow, yesterday at 3 o'clock, and I don't know. I don't remember. Lisa Huber and I were talking about this this week, that uh, this is a sign of old age. Um, but big events like that I remember. So that was 20 years ago. And if somebody were to tell you that, yeah, a spaceship from outer space, the space shuttle came down and flew into them, nobody would believe it, right? Because we have, a lot of us saw it on TV. You know, I got downstairs, turned it on, I saw the second plane fly into the building, right? So you can't tell me things that weren't true because I'm still alive, right? That's really important. So all the Gospels were written in that generation. So the big question then is, are they eyewitness documents? Are they accurate, independent eyewitness accounts? of what literally happened. And I want you to know this was really important in the early church, the early believers. In Luke, here's what he says, many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were, what? Really important word, eyewitnesses. They were handed down to us by eyewitnesses. Again, I think I said, Mark, we know from... Um, tradition church history that Mark is recording Peter's eyewitness testimony. So in Mark, we have Peter's eyewitness testimony. And I want to give you, so on the back, you can look at this. I want to give you the evidence that when we're looking at these documents, we're looking at eyewitness testimony. So you can flip to the back. That these people who wrote these things, they knew their stuff, okay? They knew their stuff firsthand. And a lot of it, I'm just going to have one from this story, but evidence from history and archaeology. 
Now, you're probably going to have to flip back again. But when you look at this in Jerusalem, it says in Mark, in verse 46, they were leaving the city. Matthew says they were leaving the city. But Luke says they were approaching Jericho. Totally contradictory, right? They can't be both true, right? So are these really true stories or are they just legends? And actually, there's good evidence that eyewitnesses saw this. Um, and I'm going to get in a minute to why the eyewitness evidence is so important or how eyewitness works. But here's something I want you to know. They discovered that was lost for hundreds of years that they had lost and didn't know that was discovered in archaeology in the last hundred years. Here's Jericho modern day. Um, I've been there. It's really cool um, to be in that place. Jericho, actually, in Jesus' time, there were two Jerichos. There was the old Jericho, and that is where the city was that Joshua conquered, up there. And a mile south was new Jericho, which Herod the Great built as his summer palace, and a lot of people ended up living there. So there was an old Jericho, and there was a new Jericho. For hundreds of years, people had lost that knowledge, but we now know it's true. And these were both here at the time of Jesus. And so now we understand that when Mark and Matthew say Jesus was leaving Jericho, he's walking out of old Jericho, goes through the gate, and and out here is this blind beggar. And from Luke, his witness perspective, or his eyewitnesses, how they're seeing it is, as he's approaching Jericho. Does that make sense? As he's leaving and approaching. So what appears to be a contradiction, and people, you say, see, it's not true. We've learned from archaeology that these actually were eyewitnesses, um, and this is actually significant. It's actually a a good point. Um, I'm going to come back to that in a second. So the archaeology history matches up all the time. And then I've got these other five points under here I kind of want to go through. Um, Other things about this being actual eyewitness accounts. Number one is the difference in the details. And this kind of relates to Jericho. How is it that eyewitnesses, one, some say leaving and some say approaching? Okay, it fits. We now know archaeologically it fits, but why would some say leaving and some say approaching? And it's because over the last few decades, there has been a lot learned from forensic science and crime scene investigation about the nature of eyewitness testimony. A lot of scholarly research, articles written. I haven't read all these things, but there's a lot of them out there. You can read about them. And here's what investigators, they've learned a lot in the last two decades especially, about what reliable eyewitness testimony looks like. And here's what they've learned. That reliable eyewitness testimony, that all the eyewitnesses who saw something all agree on the big event, that there was a crash that happened, and maybe this car was at fault, there will be an agreement on that. But as they interview each person individually, they will all have different details and things they'll remember about the event that others don't mention or record. And even some of those small details will sound like they don't agree with each other, until detectives dig in a little more and frequently they find that what sounds contradictory, actually both were true. But this is what true eyewitness testimony looks like, um, that there are differences. We just saw it with Jericho. So the eyewitness testimony from Luke is he was approaching, the other two he was leaving because that's what genuine eyewitness testimony is like, is a difference in perspective. If you look at this, I have put in blue, if we flip back over, I have put in blue everything Mark says that Matthew and Luke don't say. I put everything Matthew says in green that Mark and Luke don't say. I put everything in red Luke says that Matthew and Mark don't say. And that's significant because genuine eyewitness testimony has differences in details from all the eyewitnesses as they talk about the story. So it totally fits. 
So let me come back then to the second big contradiction. First, was he leaving or approaching Jericho? The second was, was there one blind man or was there two? That's a pretty big difference. Would you not agree? If there were two, everybody would have seen the two dudes, right? Or there was just one. But what's interesting is from eyewitness, this, the research and eyewitness testimony, there's actually something that they've identified called spotlighting. That you may have like 20 witnesses to a crash and, uh, may, or, or to, to some crime or something, some event. And that maybe there were two criminals that were involved. That some people will remember the two, but they've learned that some eyewitnesses will only focus on the one person who is most prominent and they'll only talk about the one. And it's called spotlighting. And the person that they tend, if they focus on one, it's because one of them is more prominent. They talk more, they're, more, they're the main person involved, they're doing a lot of extra stuff. And so this actually isn't a contradiction, it actually fits eyewitness testimony. And so a lot of people have wondered that probably, of the two, this was the guy who was crying out, son of Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's the one crying that out, that he's the one that throws the cloak off, that he's the one that jumps up the fastest, that he's the one who follows Jesus to Jerusalem and beyond, um, that the other guy, maybe after the miracle, he just went home to Jericho and said, Mom and Dad, can you believe it? I can see again, right? That this guy, the reason that to the two of them they focus on one is because he was the most prominent. And this actually fits how eyewitness testimony works. So 30 or 40 years ago, these discrepancies were considered a liability to the Gospels. People could use these in the 70s and nail you, and it was really uncomfortable, even in the 80s. But now, because of all the research and eyewitness testimony, I want you to know that these two things that appear contradictory and all these different details, it actually strengthens the case that these are eyewitness documents. It strengthens the case. It's no longer a liability. It's actually a, a plus. Um, because multiple eyewitnesses always tell the exact same big story, but there's the, the differences in the little things. And here's what they've also learned about eyewitness, eyewitness testimony. Andy, I'm going to use you, okay? Let's say, let's say you commit a crime, and the witnesses are all your Christian challenge friends, all right? And they don't want you to go to jail, and they see it, but they're the only ones who are there. And somehow, the police find out that they were witnesses to it. Uh, maybe it's on a camera or something. I don't know. So they, bring, they, they call these guys up, and they're going to bring them in in a couple of days to interview them. And if they don't want him to go to jail, here's what they'll do. Those, th those guys will all get together in a room and they'll say, oh my gosh, we don't want Andy to go to jail. We've got to come up with the exact same story because we don't want him to have trouble. And what they'll do is they'll collaborate together. They'll think through all the details of the story, all the possibilities. Where were we going? Where were we coming from on all of this? And they come up with the exact same story. So detectives have learned that if you have multiple eyewitnesses who come in who tell the exact same story, they learn that it is fabricated and they are lying that the only eyewitnesses they trust are if they bring in eyewitnesses and there's all these minor details that may be a little bit different, even some discrepancies perhaps initially in the reporting, that those are the people that they trust. In a jury trial, if all the eyewitnesses are totally agreeing on all the details, a good, a good lawyer will tell the jury these are untrustworthy and here's why. A good lawyer, if he's like for the defense, will point out how there are differences and discrepancies and that's actually a, a positive thing. I want to give you a modern example of this. Um, it's called, there's actually a book written about it, Wigenstein's Poker. In 1946, a, a famous philosopher from Germany who had moved to England appeared before 32 of England's greatest minds to give a lecture. The man was Karl Popper. It was at Cambridge University. And the greatest minds, including Bertrand Russell, were there of the British minds, including a man named Ludwig Wittgenstein. 
Partway through his lecture, Wittgenstein stood up and disagreed with something he said, and they argued for 10 minutes. Now, here are the things that everybody agreed upon later when they were investigating it. Number one, that there was an argument that Wittgenstein did have a poker. There's a picture of it. He had a poker from the fireplace. That Popper did say, it's not right for you to threaten a guest lecturer with a poker. That's just not proper in English society, right? You don't do that. And that Wittgenstein left because he got angry. So there's agreement on that. But when they interviewed, the police came because <laughs> it created a big rust, and they interviewed all those 32 guys. These are the smartest guys in Britain, okay? And they interviewed them. The people couldn't agree. Some of them said the poker was out of the fire and was hot. Some said that it was cold. Some said he was just waving it around making a point. Some said he was threatening him with it. Some said that Popper said it's not kind to do that while he was waving it. Some said after Wittgenstein left, he told the audience that wasn't proper for him to do. Some said when Wittgenstein left, he threw the poker down and he slammed the door as he left. Others say he sat it down nicely and quietly closed the door. So there was disagreement over the details among the most intelligent people in England over what was happening because this is how eyewitness testimony works. The things they agreed on is they knew the day, they knew it happened, they knew the location, they knew what room they were in, they knew the lecture topic, they knew there was a disagreement, they knew he had a poker, they knew that he left the room, they knew that Popper had said that wasn't kind. But all the other details got all kind of fuzzy and mixed up because that's how eyewitness testimony works. So, okay, so that number one, difference in details. Number two, the detailed knowledge of local language and customs. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but son of David was a purely Jewish idiom for Messiah. The other cultures didn't even have the idea of Messiah, the Greek-Roman culture. Rabboni was an Aramaic word, and if these were written three generations later, fabricated in Egypt, which is where a lot of those other gospels have been found, those people would not have known this phraseology. They would have not known Rabboni. So they're they're referencing things that were very specific to that language and culture. I can give you a lot of examples from the Gospels, but that's in Mark. Um, three is the occurrence of insignificant details. Insignificant details. C.S. Lewis, who was a professor of medieval and modern English literature at Cambridge and who, uh, at Oxford and Cambridge both, who knew all about mythology, he wrote his own myth, myths, and that's all he studied, talked about the fact that in mythology you never have small insignificant details thrown into stories. But in real history and in eyewitness testimony, you have small insignificant details. So maybe as I'm coming on a crash, just before a crash happens, I might tell the police officer, I was walking down the street, I saw this really cute dog, and then all of a sudden, this crash happened. Or as I was coming upon the crash, I noticed that house over there had these really beautiful flowers, and, and then I saw the crash, that people in telling their testimony will frequently throw in small insignificant details that others don't even notice. And Mark 10:50, scholars all agree, that reference to the coat, the cloak that, that neither Matthew nor Luke mentions was something that caught Peter's eye, but didn't catch the other people's eye, and that insignificant details make it into things, but in mythology... They never have those kinds of things because it's not even true, and that's not the point, is to throw in those details. Okay, number four, the accurate use of specific names, the use of Jesus of Nazareth. I wish I could talk about this, but I don't have time. This, to me, is one of the most profound and very convincing things for the evidence. These are eyewitness documents. 
I know when I say that, and you're like, why do you say that? And then you're not going to mention anything about it. I'm going to do a workshop later this year at some point, like on a Saturday morning, and go into a lot more detail. But this is a relatively new thing that's been discovered that, is, that profoundly shows that the Gospels, the way that it uses names, are eyewitness accounts. Then number five, the extensive use of detailed names, people, and places. Extensive use of detailed names, people, and places. In this story, Timaeus is mentioned, Bar Timaeus, the son of Timaeus, and the city of Jericho are mentioned. And that one's really important, and I want to tell you why. This, what I'm going to say right now is all in this paragraph, but don't, you don't have to follow it because I'm going to have it up here. Okay? Here's why it is so important that specific names and places are mentioned in the Gospels and why it demonstrates their eyewitness documents. Number one, these accounts mention miracles which occur to very specific people in very specific situations. In this case, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, in Jericho. I mean, I'm going to come to why that's so important. Number two, these events happened in a very small contained area with the vast majority of them, meaning the miracles of the Gospels, almost all the stories in the Gospels, with the vast majority of them happening within a narrow nine-mile strip or in the capital city of Jerusalem. Almost everything you read in the Gospels happened in a nine-mile strip or in the capital in Jerusalem. Here's why that's important. Because when I was, for a long time, when I heard about this stuff, I'm thinking of Israel like I think of the United States, right? So one week Jesus is in Seattle, and then the next week he's down in L.A., and then he's in... He's in Phoenix, and he heals somebody by the Grand Canyon, and he's up in Minneapolis, and then in D.C. and down in Miami because we think big because we're in America. And I really had no concept of how small Israel was till I went there. And when you go there, you realize that, that the whole area, if I were to box out the area where Jesus did virtually 90% of his miracles, it would be an area that's about 115 miles by about 15. And what's really interesting is I boxed that. So that would be from here to Olathe. And imagine Olathe is Jerusalem and Emporia is Capernaum in, in the Sea of Galilee. But what's interesting is he didn't do miracles all in this area. He only did, he did 90% of them in two specific places, in the city of Jerusalem and in a nine-mile stretch from Magdala over to Bethsaida along the Sea of Galilee. Like most of his miracles were in the hills just right around this. He was in a very narrow stretch where all of this miraculous stuff is happening, okay? It would be like Emporia to Opi. It would be like some guy comes here and he's doing hundreds of miracles on this nine-mile stretch between Emporia and Opi, and people in Kansas City catch word of it, and then he's up there a couple of times and he's doing them there and the reporters from the Kansas City Star are there. And if they hear word of this down here in this nine-mile stretch, do you think the Kansas City Star is going to send a reporter down for all these miracle workers, this miracle worker they hear about in this nine-mile stretch, that this happened in a very enclosed area? And here's why this is important, because these events were witnessed by thousands of people from all over Israel and by adversaries of Jesus, including the religious leaders who were sent from Jerusalem to investigate. Sent from Jerusalem to investigate. Look at Mark 3.8. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, the regions across the Jordan, around Tyre. People were coming from that whole country to that nine-mile stretch to see him, to hear him, and to see the miracles that he did and to receive healing. They're all converging on a very small place. And the religious establishment, they were there. Just like our reporter from the Kansas City Star would show up, or the federal government would send an FBI from D.C., right? Mark 3.22, the teachers of the law who came down from where? From Jerusalem. 
And they have an argument with him. In Mark 7, 1, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. Their top religious leaders were coming down to investigate what was going on. Okay? All coming from Olathe, down to Emporia to go between here and Olpe to see what's happening. Number four, these eyewitness accounts were written and widely distributed, I said over here, during the lifetime of those who had witnessed these events, both those for and against. So Mark is spreading all around Israel, and the people are still alive who witnessed all of this stuff. Matthew is spreading around Israel. Luke, John are spreading around. People are still alive who lived in these towns, okay? And here's what's interesting about this idea of detailed use of names and places. The Gospels that they talk about, like Elaine Pagels, if you're at ESU, the Gospels she talks about were written three, four generations later, 100, 200, 300 years after Jesus. And all those Gnostic Gospels only mention one city in all of them. What city would you guess they mention? What would you guess? Well, not Rome. It's in, it's in Israel. They only mention one city that Jesus was in. What would you guess? Jerusalem, the capital city. Okay? The real Gospels mention dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of communities, and most of them are small villages, like Nazareth, a village of 200, Nain, probably a village of 100 people. Um, that would be like um, if somebody, you know, in modern days was going to write a, let's say in 300 years, somebody wants to write a story of Garen the Miracle Worker, right, that lived in Kansas, and they live in D.C. 300 years later. They don't know Kansas, right? So what they're going to write about is Garen, he did this in Kansas City and that in Kansas City, and he was this in Kansas City and this in Kansas City. He's not going to mention Opie. They're not going to mention Gridley, much less Shinshin, right, just south of Hayes, because they don't know that stuff. But the Gospels are full of these places, places that people knew. So these accounts, number five, they were distributed within an extremely hostile environment where people who followed Jesus were arrested and killed for their belief. So when Mark's coming out with his gospel, and it's getting spread all through Israel, the people that are reading it, they live in these towns and cities. They were alive when Jesus was alive. And it's a very hostile environment. Most people in Israel still do not follow him as Messiah. Most of the religious leaders are still against him. They don't want these stories spreading. They will do anything to stop this, right? They will do anything. And that's why number six is important. Therefore, the adversaries could easily debunk these accounts if they were fabricated. All the Pharisees had to do when Mark came out, if it was legends, all they had to do was walk 15 miles down the road to Jericho and ask the question, is there somebody living here in the last 20 years named Bartimaeus or Timaeus? And they'd be like, we've never heard of this guy. Did Jesus ever heal a blind man? If it's not true, they're like, what? We don't know what you're talking about. But the reality was is they were alive. And so they could go to Jericho and they'd say, is there a Timaeus here and a Bartimaeus? Oh yeah, just inside the gate. Two houses down is Timaeus, but Bartimaeus, he's with the disciples because he's been following Jesus since he got healed, by a blind, got healed as a blind man. And by the way, I was here when that happened because a huge processional was going on and hundreds of us from Jericho came out and we saw it. You don't even have to ask Timaeus about it because I'm here. Or the widow whose son was raised in Nain, a village of a hundred. The whole village was there. So you go to Nain and you ask the question, was Jesus ever here? Oh, yes, he was. Did he raise a young man? Well, in fact, he's at 928 Union Street. If you'll just go down there, you can go to his house. His widow's still alive. Or the, the Jairus, he was the leader of a synagogue. He was a Pharisee, a religious leader in Capernaum, where Jesus was in the nine-mile stretch, whose daughter was raised from the dead, right? 
if these are fabricated stories, all they have to do is go to Capernaum and just go down there and say, there's nobody here named Jairus, right? They say, no, no, Jairus is the leader of the synagogue. He lives right next to the synagogue. I've been to Capernaum. It's a small village. They did not, not only could have been debunked, but the reality is, is they never even tried. The religious leaders never tried to debunk these stories. In fact, we know from a targum, a Jewish piece of literature written by a Pharisee, the Pharisees, the rabbis, a little after the Gospels, in the targum, they said that Jesus was a miracle worker who did wonders in Israel. But they said he was possessed by a demon who was a sorcerer. So they never even tried to come against the eyewitness testimony because they couldn't. Does that make sense? Because it's eyewitness testimony in the same generation, so they didn't even try. I just want to quick hit one. Uh, sorry, I tried not to go late this service. Jen asked me to not shorten it. Um, it's her fault, so I'm going to throw that all on Jen. One of the Gospels you hear about is the Gospel of Judas, which was discovered about 15 years ago, written 280 years after Jesus, 280 years after, multiple generations later. The claims Judas was the good guy and Jesus was the bad guy. And here's how different those other Gospels are. This is what you don't hear on National Geographic Channel, how different they are from the eyewitness documents we have. Again, it was written 280 years later. Discovered, it was discovered in 83, I guess, 83. And they said it was written by Judas Iscariot, right? 280 years later, Judas wrote it. That would be the same thing as if somebody in AD 37, 36 unearths a book, say, in Miami, Florida, 1,950 years after 1776, the year our country was founded, right? They unearth a book that was supposedly written in AD 2033, so we're still 12 years away from this book getting written, and the book's written by Benedict Arnold, right, in 2033, and in the book, it claims that Benedict Arnold was the hero of the revolution and George Washington was the actual, uh, the bad guy who was the turncoat. Would anybody believe that? No, they wouldn't believe it at all, but people take these gospels without telling you this information, and they just throw these things out. And people hear it, and they don't understand there's a huge difference between them and these eyewitness testimonies that we have that were written in the same generation of people who are alive. A huge difference. So I just want you to know, I believe. I believe. And I have good reason to believe. Okay, I'm sweating. <laughs> For me, this is good. All right, I want to finish with one thing, and we're going to sing a song, okay? I want to turn our gaze on Jesus for just a minute. Um, oh, if you want to read on this, by the way, I really recommend The Case for Christ, if this is something you're wanting to dig into. Cold Case Christianity, written by a guy who is a detective in L.A., a lot about eyewitness testimony. They both talk a lot about it, but I really recommend The Case for Christ. I want to talk for a minute about Jesus. Philosophers from way back, Socrates, always talked about the good, the true, and the beautiful, and that anywhere you find something that's good, it's going to be beautiful and true. And wherever you find truth, it's going to be good and beautiful. And wherever you find beauty, it's going to be good and true. And the three were connected all the time. And I want you to know today, what I'm trying to tell you is that these eyewitness testimonies are true, okay? And when something's true, it's also good and beautiful. And we're not just reading eyewitness testimonies about anything. These are eyewitness testimonies about Jesus of Nazareth, the one who is true, who is good, and who is beautiful. And every human being has this deep longing for goodness and truth and beauty. It's hardwired into us. Every one of us has that longing. And I want to tell you that Jesus is good and he is beautiful and he's true. I mean, as we've read the New Testament, haven't you so many times 
things he says just ring with you like, that is such deep truth. No human being could have said that. And sometimes he says crazy things, and you're like, I don't even understand. Because if something is really high-level true, am I going to understand all of it? I'm going to be confounded a lot of times, right? There's so much that rings true. And as I read these stories, aren't you just like moved by him, how good he is and how beautiful he is? I mean, look at this blind man, a guy who's totally blind, a beggar who's ignored. Most beggars have the advantage that they can see and they can make eye contact. You've had, if you've been to a big city, you've had this happen, right? You walk past beggars. Us Midwesterners don't know you don't make eye contact. The city people know you totally ignore them. So if somebody's begging, you make eye contact, and what happens? They start following you, and then the guilt piles up, and then you're before long you're giving them money. But blind beggars can't make eye contact with anybody. They're totally at the mercy of a generous person and nobody's generous with beggars. Only the ones you feel guilty about, right? So here's this man totally at the mercy of the crowd. People are saying to him, be quiet because he's like a... He's a... He's a nothing. He's a zero, right? And he's calling out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Messiah. And Jesus stops in his tracks stops in his tracks and says, you're wrong, call him, bring him to me. And he brings him to him, they bring him, I mean, he leaps up, throws his coat and money aside, right? He comes to Jesus, and Jesus treats him with the dignity. He doesn't just zap him. He says, what do you want me to do with you? He's never been treated with dignity his whole life. What do you want me to do for you? He doesn't do a miracle to him, he does a miracle with him. He involves him in it. And then he heals the man. Is that not beautiful? And the man leaves his coat and his money aside and follows Jesus for the rest of his life. When you're reading the Gospels, you're encountering in Jesus goodness, truth, and beauty. And here's why that's important. All generations are looking for goodness, truth, and beauty. My generation and the boomers before me, the thing we were mainly looking at, we were looking for goodness and beauty, but the main thing we were looking at was truth. So what I just did with you, this was really important for my generation to hear these are eyewitness documents because we really wanted to know, is that true? That was our big question. The millennials, they say, looking for all of this, goodness, truth, and beauty, but the primary thing they're looking for is goodness. They want to know, is something good? That's the question they're asking. The main critique of Christianity in my generation is, is it's not true. It's a bunch of legends. The main critique we're hearing more and more now of Christianity in the Bible is, it's not good for the world. It's a bad book. It says bad things, right? More and more we're hearing that. And for Gen Z, the thing they're most looking at, and I didn't make this up, by the way. This comes from some research. Uh, This isn't a guarantee thing. They're looking for goodness and truth, but the main thing Gen Z is looking for is beauty. They want to see something beautiful. Their main critique of Christianity, which we're hearing a lot these days, is that the Bible and Christianity is just plain ugly. It's ugly. And I just want to challenge you with a demon thing. We talked about tell your story, right? And in telling your story, I want to challenge you. Make Jesus the focus of everything you talk about. Don't talk politics with people, okay? They don't need it. Lost people don't need it. Don't talk debates on morality. People don't need that. Do you know what they need? Do you know who they need? They need Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Take them to the Gospels. Get them in the Gospel. Getting them reading Jesus. Getting them listening to Jesus because Jesus is true and he is good and he is beautiful. And if you get people engaged with Jesus, the chances of them coming to him are greatly increased because he is attractive to people. So that's my challenge from this story, okay? It is true. I believe. And not just because it's true. I believe because it's good and it's beautiful. So I want to invite you to stand, okay?
The line's going to be a little bit long at Applebee's, I'm sorry, but we want to worship our Lord. Can we do that? Thank you for your patience with me today. And what we want to do is we want to, we want to sing to God about His beauty and His goodness, so I want to invite you to let's give our hearts to Him and worship right now together. from the heavens, filling the earth with the fame of your name. Death could not hold you, the veil tore before you, you silenced the Roaring the praise of you. 
can we pray? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you left it in a way that there is evidence for the reliability of it that we don't have to just take a blind leap of faith, but we can we can trust in you because we have solid reality, historical reality under our feet. That was so important to my own journey. Thank you for that fact. I pray that we would leave today more confident than ever that as we read the Gospels and we see the beauty and truth and goodness of Jesus, that we will know those are reliable stories, that we can put the full weight of our trust upon them. And help us to be people who share you with others and who are equipped and prepared and ready that if somebody has an argument that we can answer that. So thank you for who you are. Lord Jesus, I believe, I believe, and I pray in your name, amen. All right, 12th, do you believe? I believe. I believe. Can you say it again? Do you believe? I believe. All right. You are sent. Thanks for your patience today. The Applebee's line should be shorter now, okay? Should be shorter. No Chiefs game. So.